This is Duke University. Just a review, uh, just the, uh, the roster here. We have uh, Ian Coburn from uh, Boston University and the NBR holding down the uh, academic uh, end here. But, uh, you know, at the other side of the seesaw, and so Ian will be pretty high in the air then because our, our weight is on the practitioner end. We have uh, Mark Haller from uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, uh, Jim Malachowski uh, from uh, Ocean Tomo, uh, Tony Tremontin from uh, McKinsey in their uh, life sciences practice, uh, Irving Ladowski-Berger with uh, IBM and MIT, and we have Lou Zaretsky from uh, Thinkfire. And we are going to adopt a, a slightly different business model uh, from the uh, first, first panel. We're not going to... Uh, these gentlemen, they, most of them have already spoken up. You, you have a sense of who they are. So we're not going to uh, have that uh, intro for each, but rather let's dive into the first question and get the discussion uh, going. And so, uh, you know, th this really builds on the discussion toward the end of the last panel. And the question is, uh, you know, what are we... What are we talking about? This is a panel, this afternoon's panel, is impediments to markets for technology. What are they and what should firms and government do? But markets for technology, what are, what are we talking about? Okay, uh, so to, to begin to bring a, a little order or perhaps inject a little chaos into the uh, discussion, I'll, I'll first turn to uh, Ian and then we'd like also Jim and Mark to, uh, to follow on with some, uh, some reflections on what's, what's this beast here. Ian, please. You know, a market for technology uh, is, a, is a, pretty slippery, a pretty slippery beast. Um, you know, I've asked myself many times, you know, how could you come up with a good workable definition for this? Um, and where I've sort of ended up is being able to say, well, what a market might not be as much as what a market uh, is. You know, for example, I think there's an important distinction between a collection of, of deals and, and a market per se. Uh, you know, a market is something which, which in most economic contexts involves a specific time, a specific place, whether geographic or virtual. Uh, you know, there's some coordination of activity that people are there, many people are there to buy and many people are there to sell. Uh, and all of those, those institutions which, which constitute a market are often missing when we think about what is a market for technology. Uh, you know, we don't have the town square. Uh, we don't have the New York Stock Exchange. And I think you know, a lot of the interest uh, for me in this, this whole question revolves around in what ways can we can, can we construct the institutions which will generate a marketplace as we see it operating in, in other parts of the economy? Great. Uh, follow on? Uh, well, from, from our perspective, we view the market as an evolving ecosystem that really includes all of those components, really four fundamental steps. There's first a collection of deals, which evolves into the town square, or in our view, the auction marketplace then a developing over-the-counter market, which is slightly different because now standards are developing, so each transaction begins to look more and more like the one before it. 
And then ultimately, we do believe it will go to that New York stock exchange analogy as an efficient traded exchange for IP. The only thing I'd add is that, yeah, it's, it's not a collection of deals, but by the same token, the same impediments that keep companies from even doing single deals or three deals or a half a dozen deals are the same impediments that you have to solve those in order to get to this, this more robust marketplace. Uh, you know, the, the, the factors that lead companies not to understand what they have to put into the market or not to understand the value of it, those are all related. Yeah, and one, one way that I sometimes think about it is you can look at these things as a spectrum, and at one end, the emphasis is on property. And at the other end, the emphasis is on capital. And uh, notice the emphasis has been on intellectual property. And when the pro emphasis is on property, you spend a lot of time in almost the legal aspects of it. Let's define the property precisely. If you're going to sell me a house and the emphasis is on property, precisely where is the house? When we get very efficient, we don't have to spend a lot of time on it because the house is well defined. What you really want to do in a well-functioning market is view things as capital that you can put to work. And, you know, capitalism, that, that's what the essence of it is. And to put capital to work, you want to make it as easy as possible for the capital to flow. The one problem with IP is that it's been so much the emphasis on the property and all the lawyers you need and so on, that putting it to work has proved to be really, really tough. But is that a precondition for this notion of... Uh capital and the kinds of transactions that can occur around that to occur, is that getting in the way? Which is getting in the, the way? The, having all the lawyers. Absolutely. Uh, it is hugely getting in the way, and it's especially <laughs> all the discussions we had in Marshall's panel, especially for the smaller inventor, is that if it was easier for a small inventor to put out their invention in some kind of marketplace, with some help, but not huge help, it would be much easier to find a fair price, to exchange it, and on and on and on and on. And, and yeah, it, I think it's a huge impediment, the fact that it's all legalistic versus a flowing marketplace. Re related to what Irving's saying, I would make one critical point. You cannot have an intellectual property marketplace with owner-sellers, and buyer-users alone. There has to be a third party, and that third party is the investor-speculator that creates the transaction liquidity that you need to have a real market. You need to have a place to sell these transactions other than to the users. But the question that builds a bit on what Mark said and kind of the, 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 there's a bit of an opposition here, is there, how serious is the prospect then of of a third, not just a third party intermediated market, but a market that's arm's length, where conceivably the parties are anonymous, or will that always be, be uh, sort of a, a niche portion of the broader range of transactions, which per the earlier panel tended to be much more relational and uh, you know, so on and so forth? 
Well, I'm clearly on one end of the spectrum. I mean, I believe firmly that there will be an efficient tradable market for IP rights within the very near future, three to five years. And I don't think a lot of people would necessarily concur in that opinion. But um, we see motivations already moving in that direction. We see market participants getting involved. We see institutional investors wanting to place capital in that space, not because they want to own patents or license rights, but because they want to speculate on the appreciation of the asset. So how does that work? Uh, it can work a variety of different ways. I think you see it in the market today with what people would l largely call trolls, that there are firms, including well-recognized banks, that have put forth piles of capital to buy patents to either resell them or relicense them. That was unheard of five years ago. So Wes, I think that um, you know, that's a very interesting vision for the future. And, and today at the present, I think we're actually reasonably well evolved in some sense. And we're, we're sort of like the private equity markets. We, uh, we increasingly know who the buyers are and who the sellers are. And they increasingly know each other. Increasingly, they know how to do due diligence, how to, how to get deals approved, how to fund them, and, and so forth. It's just that it happens. Uh, more behind the scenes on a more ad hoc basis than in a computer screen NASDAQ level two way. You know, in Marshall's panel, there was quite a bit of discussion toward the end on brand and trust. And, and I think some people felt, well, this is transactional. Uh, I think that to facilitate markets, the more trust and brand there is a brand, and the brand may be an individual. Look at eBay, and look at how important it is to eBay the evaluation of how good the seller is and the evaluation of the buyers. And for example, if there is a professor at Duke that is, has an, an invention, we, have, we would be shocked if it was fraudulent because of the affiliation with Duke. Uh, if, if it's somebody we never heard of that has no uh, the equivalent of eBay's. Uh, so are you saying, Irving, that that's the principle, that is a principal impediment? I mean, are you, well, are you if we want, a necessary ingredient? If we want smooth markets, this question of how do you establish brand and trust are important. Remember, when the web first came out, People were saying, oh, we'll have this incredible supply chain where you want to buy DRAM, you just go out and anybody will sell you DRAM. No company works that way. Because you don't know who the person is who's selling you the DRAM. Did they just hijack a truck in New Jersey and that's what you're buying? <laughs> no, no. So you establish relationships with your suppliers and they are well known to you and once they are established, now you want more DRAM, they get it, whatever. And if you are a small company that wants to break in, I mean, Microsoft and IBM have a huge number of small suppliers. But I bet you each of them is certified. Correct, Marshall? You would never do business with somebody you don't know anything about. I think for a smooth marketplace, you want something like that to facilitate people you never heard of to, to be trusted. A, a discussion, really kind of a, a unifying premise, and a premise for the panel, uh, is that, hey, there are impediments to the growth uh, of this. And, and I do want to dig very deeply uh, into the notion of what they are, the role of trust, et cetera, in a moment. But is that right? 
is there, uh, is there reason to believe that, this, that these markets are indeed um, nascent, that there's room to grow and hence you know, gains both private and social to be had? And for that, Ian, uh, what, what do you think? Yeah, for some years now, uh, the LES has been uh, conducting surveys that, that I've been involved in designing and implementing. You might want to of, explain who the LES is. Of uh, licensing activity. The LES is the Licensing Executive Society. And they have a, a foundation which, which has been uh, worked on this. Uh, and uh, Richard <coughs> Rasgaitis has been a, a very important uh, person facilitating this and making it happen. Rather than show you a bunch of PowerPoint slides of survey results, I thought I would just highlight some of the findings from, from asking the membership of the LES, who by and large are licensing professionals in large, uh, in large companies, um, you know, about, about these, these, some of these issues. So let me, that said, let me highlight a few of these for you. One question we asked them was, you know, think about your organization's entire inventory of IP. What fraction would you be willing to license, but will never succeed in doing so? Answer, about a third. You know, that, that for me was a really kind of a striking result. Ask these folks, you know, of the IP that you would like to license, but you can't, you know, a very large fraction of that is stuff for which there's no discernible demand from end users, 40 to 50%. Now, it may be because you want to license it, but fundamentally it's junk, right? <laughs> but, and some proportion of that 40% surely falls in that category. But I think a large fraction of this stuff, you can't even find uh, a buyer. There's no discernible demand. That's a, you know, the matchmaking function of a market or the power of things like web-based platforms is for you to, to meet and see and encounter you know, that person you couldn't otherwise find. Uh, you know, these, questions, these surveys also asked these folks about, about the characteristics of deals that were not done. Uh, so, you know, of intellectual assets you actively try to license, for what percentage were, could you find anybody to start a discussion? Right. Between 25 and 50%. That seems like a, a pretty low number to me. Uh, for when you found a potential licensee, for what percentage could, did you start a negotiation? 25% to 30%. Of all the times that you entered into a substantive negotiation, what fraction did not result in a successfully executed agreement? 50 to 60%. Once you start multiplying out, find somebody, start a negotiation with them, you know, to get to a successful conclusion, and there's a very small fraction of stuff that you know, people actively trying to license ever actually gets transacted in. Which suggests there's a very substantial nascent market for technology but, but, to be but, exploited. But clearly, you know, we, we talked earlier this morning, the, the, the story, does this, does this apply? Our image of markets for technology is such that they, they work pretty well in life sciences. So does this story apply to life sciences? And you know, that, uh, that's certainly our image. And, and if Tony, you, you might be able to uh, speak to that. I, I, I think the, the story we're hearing does apply very well to life sciences. I bet if you did that survey with tech transfer people at universities or life science specific licensing professionals, you'd get very similar answers. 
I think we heard from Jeff in the first panel that something like 5% of innovation actually attracts venture capital dollars. Um, I think that uh, if you look at um, some of the efforts that uh, large pharmaceutical companies are trying to access uh, academic innovation, you see innovation centers or incubators set up here and there, but it's by no means a wholesale way to access broad swaths of, of innovation. So if you look at, uh, in pharmaceutical development, very late stage assets, assets are very close to being potentially marketed. I think the mark, you could argue that the market may be working okay there, but certainly for much earlier assets, I think the market is extraordinarily inefficient. Well, what do you mean by earlier assets? In, in earlier assets being uh, early, so pharmaceutical R&D, uh, unlike tech R&D, takes course over eight to 15 years. So um, phase three assets, which are very late in the R&D pipeline, very close to the market, you can recognize probability of success and value in those assets somewhat better than you can something in phase one or preclinical. And for those very early assets, which is the very root uh, source of innovation and, and pharmaceutical pipeline, those assets, the, the market is not only inefficient, it, it, it almost solely relies on venture capitalists and small startup companies to bring that IP forward. So it sounds like then that, that even where the popular image would be, even where this stuff works really well, there are a lot of untapped opportunities. Yeah. So the premise of the panel, nice to hear, you know, that there are impediments out there is, is, is uh, valid. So what I'd like to do then is, is go around um, the table going from left to, to right and ask each of you to identify what you see as the most important or key impediment to the growth of these markets. Uh, Jim, if we can begin with you. Well, I think the um, technical term would be risk analysis. The common term would be fear. And that's really fear of transacting in that if you sell or give up an IP right, it may be something that you, A, will want later. B, you fear that your customer down the road may be sued. And related to that is an impediment that there are really no derivative markets. That when we talk about IP today, we talk about licensing or selling a patent right. We don't talk about collectively transacting entire groups or categories as you would any other financial instrument. Irving? I would say that if you, if you look at other markets, like the financial markets, or the housing market and try to learn from them what has made them work well and maybe we can apply them to IP, I think there are three key factors that make them work well. Number one is transparency. All available information is out there. Number two is integrity. That, you know, that gets back to trust. That when you buy something, what you buy is what you buy. And, and, more, and people trust each other. There is an integrity in the system. And number three is mechanisms to establish a fair price. And they all work in, in markets that are well-functioning. But if you look at those three, they don't work well at all in the world of IP. I mean, I'm told by my colleagues at IBM who are experts, and Marshall can probably testify to this, it's very easy to hide who owns a patent. 
often you have no idea. You know, you can set up weird Grand Cayman, whatever. Am I not correct? And you know, if I want to sell you a house, and when yeah, <laughs> and I can tell already. <laughs> and you and I tell you I own the house, and you go and find out. That well, it's really not Irving. It's some bizarre, you know, little island in the Caribbean. You would be a little worried about that. As the weather in the Caribbean. So, right. so uh, and I don't know why that is allowed, Marshall. I have no idea why, unlike other areas, the lack of transparency is allowed. And people go way out of their way to hide who owns exactly what IP. Second, the whole integrity issue, it gets back to the question of, it's almost like IP has a bad reputation, and that's why there are so many lawyers, because people almost start out expecting to get screwed. <laughs> and I think IP is generally a negative right when you talk about patents, and so historically, when you knocked on someone's door for a transfer, you were asking them to pay you, and especially if it was a non-exclusive license, pay you for a right they already thought they owned for which they'll get no competitive advantage. And, and that's why I think it's got such a difficult reputation. I see, so if, at that point, if I think you're trying to screw me by getting me to pay you for something you shouldn't, I'm within my total well, right to... You just don't view it as a win-win at that point. Yeah, I understand. And then the fair price, which we talk quite a bit about, which is, you know, if, if I have nothing to lose and he's a big ongoing business, and if I can get an injunction, I mean, I, can, I may go in and say, how about a billion dollars and I'll go away. Then we'll settle for 500 million. Well, that's not a fair, that may or may not be a fair market price. So we need to make it as close as possible as a healthy market in the way healthy markets have worked for other goods in society. Well, building on some of what Irving said, I mean, let, let's look at these assets. There is a lot of ambiguity, am, ambiguity around this, these assets. What are they? I mean, this is not a house. I can't look at it and see it and know that it's exactly this. It's bricks and mortar. It's, it looks like this. There's a lot of argument about um, what a particular property is even covering. There are, you can get you know, six people inside the same organization, and when you pull it into a package, there's even more argument. So we have a situation where there's, there's ambiguity around what the asset is and what its characteristics are. That, that adds difficulty. We also have this timeline issue that Tony uh, talked about. These things, pharma is a great example. I, I want to transact something here that I'm not going to know if it has any value or not for several years. In that sense, these are assets with potential for value. I mean, it's almost like the old game that you used to have where you would pull the little lever and the little steel ball would go up to the top and then it would jiggle around and you would try to jiggle it and get it to hit the right things and land in whatever that cup was at the bottom. You are, you're talking about buying an asset that sits up there with some weight and some potential and the question is, is it going to hit all the right places on the way down? And there are a lot of places where it can just go into the drain. So we need to, so consequently because of that ambiguity and because of the timeline issue, which is very different than a lot of other assets that are more well-defined and that where their value is well understood, 
I think a lot of this, uh, it comes from my perspective, comes back to uh, a value framework. Coming up with a, a, a way of valuing or value framework. And I don't mean valuation in the normal sense where somebody would come to PwC and say, hey, uh, Haller, do a report that says how much this thing is worth and you know, it's worth $100 million. And I, I, when people ask me that and they're involved in a deal, I say, why would you ever want me to do that for you? Why would you want to pay for that? Because you can plunk that down in as nice a name as PricewaterhouseCoopers is, nobody really is going to care. What they're going to care about, though, is if I see a value framework as a bridge. A value framework is a means by which uh, people who understand technical risk can weigh in. People who understand commercialization risk can weigh in. People who understand legal risk and what this property is even about can weigh in. And we can put it in a framework where we can understand what the likely outcomes are. We can correct some of our incorrect intuition. And we can even use that when we come to the negotiation table to get agreement. I mean, to Ian's point, look at, I mean, we can back up and look at all this potential for deals. But look at just the deals that come to the table that don't get done. And, and, and I would postulate, and having been in the room for quite a few of those, that those happen when there is a lot of religious argument about something. Okay, maybe it's whether or not this drug will be covered by insurance or not. Well, that makes a big difference on value. But how big a difference? And if we're going to sit there and argue all day long about whether or not it's likely to be covered or not covered, but we have no framework into which to put it to say, well, okay, let's put some bounds around this question. I mean, it's really, it could affect the value this much, or it could affect the value this much. If it's this much, then maybe I can come up with a structure that moves the risk downstream in an appropriate fashion. So, so that value framework, I'm sorry to go on. on no, no, that, this but is it's really so the folks really don't for me. say when they identify risk, the, the, the logical question in a lot of these things isn't, you know, let's bound it. If, if I can right, add, add to this, ahead. I mean, yeah. the, the issue, again, speaking for those early pipeline assets, the issue is the risk. These, these compounds or these, these bits of intellectual property have about a 3 to 6% chance of ever becoming a product. So the, the failure in this space is enormous. So therefore, the risk is enormous. So to be able to price that risk is very, very difficult in these early assets. And then I think to what you were saying was the valuation that goes on top of that, that, is, that risk is only one component of the valuation equation, if you will. Very, very difficult to know at these early stages what you are actually getting in a licensing transaction. So one of the barriers then I think to this working more uh, efficiently in pharma is that the, uh, the model has to actually be built around things unlike tech I think where you can get a sense of something at least from engineering first principles this thing is likely to work in my machine. In pharmaceuticals you have to build a structure for things that almost always fail. Right, and how do you share that risk appropriately and price it appropriately and get into that game uh, in an efficient way is very difficult. And I think one of the other big barriers here then, which I think speaks to sort of this whole, this whole seminar is that it, my sense in pharmaceuticals is that <clears throat> compounds or a pipeline by most pharmaceutical executives is viewed as a collection of assets, physical assets that you can see uh, and the, the way to monetize those assets is to launch a drug out of it. I don't think the mindset is there in the industry right now that this is actually a collection of intellectual capital or property that you would actually monetize. Now, I think the small biotechs understand this very well. Right? They understand that you can monetize this IP by doing a deal 
just proof, uh, post proof of concept for a drug, and you don't have to take this thing all the way to the market. But large pharmaceutical is working through a hangover uh, of a time when the blockbuster model worked extraordinarily well um, and is probably not likely to work well going forward. So how do you actually behave differently in that? And there's a huge mindset piece to that. And, and that might be, represent one of those impetus for a market to begin to happen. And it's not, it's because somebody's back is against the wall. Right. Their whole business model may be disrupted. Yeah. So now I don't have the luxury of just doing the old path anymore. So maybe we'll see, which is very much a portfolio approach because of the low, the low incidence of actual success. Right. You could see that space may be driven in a, in a direction where, where creating those capital flows is going to be extremely important. Yeah. You know, let, then it, let my two colleagues finish and then we can, but I'd like to come back to this issue of ambiguity, yeah. which I think is very, very important. Lewis, so uh, in the high-tech industries where, I, where I've always focused, uh, one of the biggest problems historically has been one of motivation, and that's increasingly being resolved, especially at certain leading companies like an IBM where Marshall helped pioneer this. But um, when I say motivation, what I mean is the motive to do something with the IP to capitalize on it other than just using it in the firm's internal products and services. So uh, that sounds like an old obstacle, and I know a lot of people have done a lot of work there, but it remains for a lot of companies. And when that's resolved, then we'll see this market grow astronomically. Uh, something that's related to that beyond the, the initial motivation is sort of an organizational wherewithal to approve and follow through. So you'll see situations all the time where somebody at a large company like a Motorola or an HP will say, here's a great idea, we could make a lot of money from this, and it'll be derailed by another stakeholder in a different business unit or elsewhere who thinks that maybe it's just a little too risky. So uh, it, it's because the stakeholders don't often in most companies have enough experience and comfort with this kind of business that they can quickly reach the same kind of decisions that they would about their ordinary products and services. Again, the best companies are resolving this faster, but it'll be some time before everybody resolves it. With a little clarity, this is, you're on your first point. So this morning we uh, heard about challenges associated with not invented here, okay? Your first point was sort of the flip. It's invented here, but it's not going to be commercialized here, okay? Well, and it you, doesn't and have to be. Maybe it is. Maybe it's well, no, that, that's the point. And you're saying then mm -hmm. that as, as arguably there's a syndrome associated with not invented here, there's sort of the, the, this evil twin out there that, well, yeah, idea, whatever reason gets derailed, but then the, the firms don't sit back and say, hmm, okay, maybe we won't do it, but let's see if somebody else would, would value the, the, the opportunity. So you're saying there are these two components, if you will, the not invented here and uh, then the not, you know, and if it's not going to be commercialized here, nobody's going to commercialize it. Is that, is that yeah, a, yes, a, yes, a, I agree. A dramatic yeah. way, if you will, but, but fundamentally it amounts to uh, you know doesn't play nice with others and share. Right. And uh, you know, so how, how many uh, how many of the world's best GPS patents does Motorola need to own? And and if they own too many, which in my opinion they do, uh, why can't they make millions of dollars by selling or licensing some of them? And the answer is because it's too risky. Uh, that sort of thing. Why There's, is it risky? Well, inevitably, uh, in, in companies where this isn't completely resolved yet, which are most companies, 
some stakeholder somewhere, whether it's in the legal group looking to prevent risks in a business unit, hoping to commercialize products or elsewhere will say, someday I might wish I still had that and therefore you mm -hmm. stop and give me my five-year chance to see mm -hmm. what I can do. And um, in, in, some of the, in the most evolved companies like an IBM, they've been past this for a long time and they understand very well that we can introduce high-end servers and we can also license Fujitsu and let them do the same and we'll still be differentiated in different ways and we can do both, diversify and make more money. What Lou is saying is a big, it's a big problem. The, the management of these assets inside a company is so poor, even the best that would tell me they have it nailed, I'm telling you they don't have it nailed. Most of the time these things are assets that are, and I love lawyers, they've, they've really helped me over my career in terms of money, but these are, this is not an asset that, that I think it should have exclusive ownership by lawyers. Uh, I, I would use, and yet in many cases that, that is what is out there or an undue influence. Uh, you know, I like to use the analogy of land. I mean, you would have your lawyer go out and get a deed to the land and get good title to the edges of the land and wh what's mine and what's somebody else's. You would also probably have the lawyer keep trespassers off the land. We, we sometimes call those infringers. We also might have them, uh, we also might have them pay the property taxes on the land and make sure we don't lose title. Well, that's uh, maybe a patent maintenance payment. But should the lawyers really be deciding whether we're going to build a factory on that land, whether we're going to trade our land for someone else's, whether we're going to combine parcels with the neighbor next door? That really is a holistic decision that involves and that you need to have some process around, that you need to have governance and an understanding of authority, that you need to actually have this, again, this value framework that makes it hurt because it doesn't hurt right now to just hold stuff. It's already been paid for, and who's going to argue with you, right. okay? No, but I, no, but, I, but, but you, we, it can't be that way. I, as be I don't know if Marshall is about to say this. One of the reasons we learned in IBM to monetize assets is we often, in the 80s, say we had these incredible assets, and we watch our competitors take them to market. Right. And let me tell you, that is really humiliating. That so, can be motivating. So, no, no, so when you that say, you know, and I have a classic, a, a classic example would be reduced instruction set exactly. which IBM invented, and it sat on the shelves of the research group forever until Joel Birnbaum and a whole bunch of people who eventually got all kinds of prizes for that quit and went to Hewlett Packard. Right. Why? There you go. Yeah. Because they could get it, they could do it there. Yeah, and, and so Son, that, Son that, remember, I mean, also did it. Classic example. Yeah. Oh, wow. how, about, how about Oracle and relational databases? Sure. Lest we forget. So what was but there's a lot of stuff out there that's never been seen the light of day. Well, that I, is I, wasted I, away inside that, corporations. That's right. What, well, I'll get another classic example. The mini computer. What? The mini computer is a classic example. It sits up there in, in, in the Boston area. DEC is making the mini computer. IBM didn't get in the mini computer business. Why? Guess who was against it? The sales force. Why is that? They make big fat commissions selling mainframes. They make little tiny commissions selling mini computers. God forbid that PC hadn't even surfaced yet. But sometimes you find that that kind of resistance comes from a very unexpected place inside the company, which is what, what Mark is saying. But that's always going to happen. Right? It's always going to happen. I was going to say another thing that happens here, and we find this all the time, even though I would like to think that we have one of the more sophisticated engines to do this in corporate America, maybe in the corporate world. 
nobody ever gets criticized for not doing something. Exactly. So yeah. you go to the research guys and you say, you know that traffic predictive software you have? You're never going to put that in Windows. Let us have it and we'll go license this to somebody or sell it to somebody or start a business around and pick your poison. Oh, well, geez. Well, we're not going to use it, but I don't want to be criticized five years down the road if that becomes a big deal and somebody say, how come we don't have that as a big deal inside of Microsoft? You mean you license that for, you know, three dogs and a cat out there to, to whoever that thing is? And so you get that kind of reluctance, even if you wanted to do it, right. by people who think subsequently down the road there will be a, somebody will have perceived a business need that was unmet and you didn't meet it and therefore you get criticized. So the quick knee-jerk, I can't get hurt reaction is to say no. Well, Marshall, I wish you had licensed relational technologies to Larry Allison and gotten a little piece of whatever he sold yeah. instead of Larry just doing it. You could have screwed him up, too. I mean, <laughs> 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 uh, on that note, I think things are wrong. <laughs> That's right. Uh, hey, right. He, he, he'd have to become a professional sailor in, in, in that event. But. Uh, um, <laughs> Uh, on that note, I'd like to move to Ian, and, but I, there are topics here that have come up, and I want to return to a bunch of these issues. But well, ambiguity. I, I, yeah, ambiguity is right there, I, 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 but I'd like to hear what Ian's uh, candidate here is, is for the uh, key impediment to the emergence of these um, markets. Well, among the candidates. Among the candidates. Uh, let, me first, the let me first sort of, you know, uh, revisit this issue of transparency and, you know, that, that Irving brought up. I think you know, if you look at well-functioning markets, transparency in a variety of senses is very important. One of the things which the market for IP, with some, some real exceptions like the Ocean Tomo auctions lacks is price discovery, you know, any, any, any widely available uh, access to what transactions are taking place, uh, for what and, and at what price. You know, we've talked about the, the real estate market, you know, the real estate market is one in which, which every, you know, all the transactions are public and, and everybody knows what prices are paid and there's a, there's a land registry that anybody can get to. That doesn't seem, that level of transparency or in the public securities markets doesn't seem to hamper transactions any. Uh, I would also identify another big impediment uh, as, as complexity and you know, let's, let's revisit Ashish's omelette. Uh, you know, Ashish said, well, you know, why would you why would, you, why would you buy the chicken farm when you could just buy the eggs? And well, there's a very good reason why you end up probably wanting to buy the chicken farm, which is that you know, in, a, in a licensing transaction, very often the guy who owns the chicken farm wants to you know, you know, sell you some eggs, but he also wants to reach through rights to any, omelette, any, any improvements in omelet recipes that you might come up with. He wants you to, to you know, give him an upfront payment to fund the chicken feed. Uh, and, and you know, the layers and layers of all the fascination of any licensing agreement, right, has many, many, many layers of what, you know, I would regard as probably unnecessary complexity. I think that, you know, standardization, you know, a common set of, of terms, and then, you know, you want to argue about, about field of use and, and geography and reach through rights and grant backs and all the rest of it. Well, you know, have a standard set of terms and then adjust the price appropriately. For many, I think economists looking at the licensing market see that many things are, are backwards. You know, that the, 
you know, everything, you know, the, the price is kind of set because we always license at 2% in this industry and then we'll haggle endlessly about these variations on terms which may or may not turn out to be significant. Arguably the market would work a lot better the other way around. Pretty much a standardized deal sheet where you can check a few boxes, exclusive, non-exclusive, whatever, and then haggle about the price. Um, by the way, if any in the uh, audience, I keep trying to turn around. Great, okay. If we can have a mic uh, here and then up uh, as well. And, and again, please do identify yourselves before you speak. Yes, I'm Anthony Edwards with Hanoversoft. And as I listen to you guys talk, and particularly when, Ian, when you were saying the percentages dropping down, it struck me, did anyone do the market research on this? I, I, I'm thinking about from a different perspective for a moment. When you, have some, when you have intellectual property, just because it's intellectual property doesn't mean somebody else wants it. And when I heard you knocking down the percentage, it sounds just like in a sales environment where I've made something and I found a market, but the person doesn't want to buy it. Well, why don't they want to buy it? So, uh, and I know, and we're talking about the paradigm of selling houses. Houses are a well-known commodity. With intellectual property, you, you get the fear factor. I don't know what this thing is. I don't know what it's going to do. So. Yes, uh, Dean Woodward, uh, I'm an IP attorney with uh, Research Triangle Institute, and let me first say that 99% uh, of lawyers give the rest of us a bad name. Um, <laughs> with, with, <laughs> with, respect to, with respect to some of the comments um, made by, by Irving and Mark, um, what we're talking about, and, and I guess Jim, what we're talking about is disintermediating the venture capitalists and, and the, the IP attorneys, and I'm all for that. I, I do think that they add a lot of dead weight to the transactions. But the fundamental problem is that a lot of, even the best deal today can look really bad in hindsight, to, to Marshall's point, that, that you know, the, the last phase of the project is always going to be the, the flogging of the innocent. And, and so what I think uh, alternative... Um, alternative structures or, or frameworks for, for transacting these deals. What they need in order to disintermediate the, the venture capitalists and the, and the lawyers, at least from some of those transactions, the ones that, that have better liquidity prospects, what, that, what those alternatives need are, are some win-win successes. Some, you know, some successes that show that, that an alternative works, that, that we can get away from the, from the old model and that you know, the, the buyers, the willing buyers, the willing sellers can come together, ha uh, hash out a deal, and they can both walk away happy. I think that's really ultimately where we need to get, and I, I shared, I, I like to share Jim's optimism that we'll get there eventually, but I think the fundamental problem is, is what Marshall pointed out, that, that there's always going to be deals that look bad in hindsight, and, and that's what really raises, ramps up the fear. Yeah, you know, I would look at it less disintermediating the lawyers I mean, after all, generally in a financial transaction house, uh, you, you do use lawyers, but it is the exception that people need to sue each other, correct? That is more the exception. And, and we often, we all, we're all advised then to use good lawyers to minimize the probability that happens. <coughs> I think what, what we're talking about is if you create a good market, you still need legal advice, but hopefully the lawsuits will decrease quite a bit because hopefully maybe these expert market makers 
will try to smooth the flow. Or I don't know if that's the right term. Whereas today, it's such an antagonistic situation that the lawyers are up front. So it's less disintermediating than put them more or less in the same position they occupy in more smooth function market. Is that a reasonable? No, I Isn't one of the challenges when, with patented IP the fact that at any given time, you may or may not know who is using it, who might be using it. And its value is dependent on, upon who that is. So you can value it for a marketplace, but if you don't know somebody's going to be playing in that marketplace, you haven't properly valued the marketplace or properly valued the asset. And just going back to the trust point then, you know, it's really in the interest of big companies that might have a lot of money, potentially, to not be known exactly either what they're doing or potentially that they're in the market for that asset, um, which creates a trust problem on, on the one hand. Um, and on the other hand, don't the, some of the folks who have, have been referred to as patent trolls and independent inventors, don't they look so much alike that it's hard to distinguish between them? So just going to the shape-shifting nature of patents or IP, depending on who's involved and, and who, um, who's working. Is that kind of still an impediment that your form cannot resolve? One of the points that your remark raises, uh, then I just want to throw this out and then get to the other members of the audience, is something that I think uh, folks up here might want to speak to as well. We're talking about markets. There's really, in, in the preponderance of settings <coughs> where, where <coughs> these might happen, there really is nothing that you might call a market. Place. Okay, again, getting back to the Ashish uh, uh, village metaphor and, and so on, but, but uh, fast forward to the uh, 21st uh, century. So we have two, two folks who want to speak to uh, Jason Albert with Microsoft. Um, I would be interested uh, in hearing the panel's thoughts about really how do you make a market given the information barriers and the uniqueness of the assets. I mean, in a stock market, you have the efficient capital markets hypothesis. All the information is consolidated in the price. And also, you're not buying the entire company. You're buying a piece so anybody else can buy the same thing or in a commodities market corn. In this case, every transaction is sort of a unique thing. I mean, it's a little bit like the housing market. But even there, you may not have as many sort of comparable uh, transactions that you can use to judge that. So it seems to me that there's just a humongous information barrier to trying to make a market in this as compared to financial markets or commodity markets uh, because of the uniqueness of the asset and and the fact that we don't think that the information could be embodied in the price. So maybe I could st start with that one. I, I disagree completely. I, I think we think about it as what is the information ratio you know about the product. So let me give you three analogies. Buying a share of stock, and we can pick Microsoft stock, hiring Mark as an employee, or buying a patent. When you buy a share of Microsoft stock and you read the perspectives and the website and talk to people, I contend that you know relatively little about Microsoft's operations and the true risk factors of that stock. In comparison, well, and the reason it's the price, the wisdom of the crowd, is simply because of the volume and the liquidity options, knowing that if you buy it, you could quickly get out of it. Compare that to my hiring of Mark as my second example. I mean, how do I know how much to pay him? I, I look to what other people with his degrees are paid, but I really have no idea what his value contribution will be to my my business. And then I look at a patent that's sold at auction, and I say, I can read the four corners of the patent. 
I can read the license agreements, I can read the file history, and if I go through that effort, the information ratio that I know about that technology and that asset, I believe to be greater than what I know when I hire Mark or what I know when I hire or buy a share of Microsoft. So I don't think it's a problem. I think the problem is we don't yet have the transparency and the volume of transactions to give everyone comfort. But we're getting that. We're getting that trust. And the trust is also now in the market makers. You know, one final point. We had an experience at one of our auctions last year where someone bought a patent for $800,000. And afterwards, we went up to him and, you know, so what was your motivation? And, you know, because we noticed you hadn't done any diligence. And this was a sophisticated buyer. And, and he said to us, he goes, look, I saw the other people in the room bidding who I respect. I respect Ocean Tomo for putting in quality merchandise, and I thought it was a value. I'm not saying I endorse that decision, but that shows trust in the marketplace that didn't exist before. Someone spent 800 grand on that stuff. I had a question. Uh, I thought it was a wonderfully revealing set of uh, impediments, especially the internal naysayers and things like that that we don't usually see. But I'm surprised that one nobody has mentioned. Uh, in, in a European con uh, uh, conference, for example, we heard, especially in the life sciences, uh, practitioners getting up there and saying, oh my god, I have this patent, and how am I going to tell my client I have 70 blocking patents that we're going to have to clear? They're standing in the way of his wonderful invention. And then I don't hear any of you saying, gee, uh, one of the risks we can't evaluate is uh, uh, all the other patents that are out there that could cause us problems. And yet we, we hear lots uh, uh, about this as a potential risk. So are we hearing wrong, or is this just another thing to add to the list? Well, I, I think, um, you know, in companies that have good IP departments, before you file for a patent, you do that kind of due diligence. And, you know, you're always taking risks, but I think for the most part, I mean, IBM, we get thousands of patents a year, and for the most part, people have done the due diligence. You know, the information is available and very searchable, correct, Marshall? It, it's easy to find all the information out there. You just need good IP lawyers, and if they say go, I don't remember too many times when things have gotten reversed. So why would they? Why would that be a problem in you? In this well, I think it's both, I think it's industry specific. In, my, in our industry, where you can write software, you can write around almost anything eventually without without too much difficulty. If I'm in a molecule business and I've got a patent on that molecule, I don't care if you move the hydrogen, you know, the hydrogen thing one 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 thing over on the on the, on the molecule. It's going to make the drug ineffective. So I could add a molecule. That is pretty much locking up the, locking up the territory. That's the whole idea. You know, I, I think it is or can be an impediment, and, it, and the, the and it depends on the industry as to the spectrum of that. But clearly, that's a factor that goes into the value or goes into whether or not you're going to buy it. You need to figure it out. It's another uncertainty. We aren't talking about when you're buying a company, you're buying a vertical slice of a market. You know, there are 12 companies, and they each have their slice. And I can look at how to value that more easily than when I am looking at something that cuts horizontally that says, I may have a claim across all the vertical slices, or six out of the 12 vertical slices. However, 
there are other things that are going to bear upon whether or not I successfully have that claim. And so that's the whole difference in nature between company trying to figure out the value of a company and trying to figure out the value of one of these assets that's one of the horizontal factors like labor and you know, other competitive advantages that lead to profit at the bottom line. It makes it unique. If I could also just brief, briefly add what, what uh, Professor Reichman is, is referring to is uh, there's been an enormous discussion um, in some policy circles, but particularly academics concerned with uh, uh, IP policy and so on around the issue of what he's uh, of what commonly referred to as thickets. Okay, uh, that is to say, when there are an enormous number of patents with you know, that can be uh, uh, mutually blocking in the sense that you can't make any money from X unless you get the rights to Y and Z and A and so on. And, and the point that he's making is this didn't come up in this discussion. I think Mark is right. This is perhaps a risk, but yet just another one of many uh, sources of, uh, of risk. And it, what it suggests... Sometimes it's one of those risks that just don't get over, and that's why it yeah, yeah. doesn't get done. But, but what's so interesting is we, here we've actually heard about a lot of sources of risk. That's just what, and academics, I think, have been preoccupied uh, with that one, okay, uh, uh, just uh, having played in this literature and research as, uh, as well. But I thought that's an interesting well, point. Yeah. That's why companies license whole portfolios. That's right. Which is the norm, not the exception yep. in, in the IT industry. So mm -hmm. IBM does a cross-license agreement with AT&T Bell Labs. Why do they do that? Because they're both sitting on 35,000 bloody patents mm -hmm. each. And the last thing they need is to get into a patent war over something like that. They'll mm -hmm. take the one off, the guy who's got one thing that you can't possibly find anyway until they assert it. Then you don't even know whether you really have a problem or not because the patents haven't been battle tested and all of that other kind of stuff that ultimately happens. If the price of poker is too high, believe me, in today's internet world, the entire world tries to figure out what the prior art is. Just try to assert against an open source patent and see what happens, or something in the open source world, see what happens to you. The Pharmaceuticals don't cross license? No. Uh, no. no. Not yet. No, they don't because in their case, the patent and the product have a one-to-one -one relationship. It, if I can correct uh, a point, on the downstream, on the on compound. The on the downstream. Yes, but now the kind of issue that, that's come up, and then I want to get to uh, an audience uh, member and then over to Ian that has a point, uh, um, that there's been a proliferation of patents on what are broadly called research tools. So all the kinds of inputs into the uh, uh, R&D process uh, that, that are really just research inputs, and you can be have hundreds of patents on targets, there are patents on platforms, and so on and so forth. You can go down the list. And that's where the issue of, of thickets has uh, raised some concerns in uh, life sciences. I've actually done some research on just that, and Jerry's familiar with it, and uh, uh, it often doesn't stop anybody because it, from our both interviews and, and some data that we've collected, why? Nobody's cross-licensing. It's because of pervasive uh, de facto, sometimes unknowing on the part of academics, often knowing on the part of firms, 
infringement, okay? It's just not stopping anybody in any, there are a few instances that you can point to, but, but as a, a significant issue, uh, we haven't found that to be a, a break uh, on the process. But it's, you've been very patient. Thank okay, you. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm Nancy Shepard, and I've been in the pharmaceutical industry for 16 years in, in business development in that industry for the last seven. And so what I'm going to say isn't based upon any particular pharma, but I uh, would just like to say that when you're looking at what are the impediments, I think we also need to think about what are the solutions. And I heard one of the panel members suggesting some type of web-based access as a way of finding solutions. I have three topics that I'd just like to talk about really briefly. One was, um, in, in reality, and here I'm really talking about technology, not compounding licensing for big pharma. But one is, uh, there are really too many sellers and not enough buyers. And so yes, big pharma is definitely swamped with receiving lots of input from universities, each one of which has a huge repertoire of patents. And so the solution, I don't think we'll be hiring more people within pharma to look at those patents and try to figure out what the answer is. And I don't think uh, the solution will be for big pharma to be more explicit about what they want in the way of technology, because in reality, you don't know what all of the scientists want. I think a solution is definitely that making it a better way of searching and finding when you do have a need and making it apparent who you go to to get those patents. So I liked that one. Number two was the lack of knowledge of the value and the framework and the end product. And if you think of Big Pharma's end product as being compounds uh, and not technology, the issue really is if someone comes to you with the technology, you don't really have a great way of understanding its value in the end product. A solution to that, which is not something that I see Big Pharma really incorporating in their processes, but it would be a solution, probably better ones, but would be the kind of end-to-end -end software tracking of projects for decision making. So that in the end, when the product comes out and there's a question of did my technology play a role in your decision making, mm -hmm. it would be clear if you had the end-to-end -end tracking of projects. Uh, and number three was, uh, well, why don't they want to buy it? Someone else brought up that question. And I would say part of it is the comment that I heard from the panel of, well, don't we already own it, or couldn't we do that anyway? And so there's really an education process that has to happen with the scientists who are working in the laboratory. It's very difficult to follow everything that they're doing and all the technologies that they're using. A solution to that might be the transparency question, <coughs> and that is when you publish an article in a scientific paper, many of the scientists assume, if it's published, why can't I use it? That's and right. you try to explain to them well, just because it's published doesn't mean you have the right to use it because it might have been patented before it was published. Mm -hmm. So I think there's an education process there and a transparency question. Nancy, that's great. Let me just uh, uh, prefigure something. Uh, yes, we've been dwelling on the, uh, the half-empty uh, glass here. The, the next broad uh, theme here, and uh, I think we'll have time, is indeed uh, everybody here is going to have their feet put to the fire on just this solutions, okay? So I want to quickly hit two points and then move on to that because I think that'll explode a, yet, a, yet another uh, discussion. Bo and then Ian, please. Okay. Uh, Bo Hyden, uh, Deputy Director for SIP in Sweden. I, I think uh, this talk about markets is, is, is definitely where the focus should be. Try to stay out of this administrative arena talk in the legal arena, start to talk about how we can handle this in the business arena. And one of the areas that we find, especially when we talk about 
languages and London Protocol and what's going on in the Congress and whatnot. What we haven't talked about is the capital markets, which I think is the most important and most interesting. How, how is it that we're going to transform intellectual assets into financial capital? And part of, this comes, part of our problems with this comes from this back in 1958 when Medigliani and Miller through the theorem that the difference between, or there's a separation between the, the liabilities and the assets that uh, when I buy a stock, it doesn't affect the price of the stock. This is completely false in a world of intellectual assets. So um, to go back to was adjacent and talk about the point that it was difficult and Jim commented on that is that uh, information exists but the fact of the person who is doing the valuing with the information has an impact on the value of the, act of the asset itself. So the act of valuation is changing the value, so to speak. The, the context is completely different. So when there was a question before when they said, um, is a pending patent as good as a granted patent? It depends on who has it. Microsoft has it or I have it. It's going to have a different, it's going to be a different answer. So to be able to make that efficient, uh, we have a lot more work to do. And I think it comes back to what Mark was saying, is that we're not nearly as sophisticated as we need to be. The information is there, but we don't process it good enough. We don't have enough standards, way of thinking about this. It's completely human uh, resource dependent. If, I give, if Mark values it, he can probably create more value out of it than somebody else. And um, so creating auctions and whatnot is one way to kind of vet this out. But to make it more efficient than that, we have to become much more sophisticated. Ian, you had a wave it off. Okay, well, with that, um, I'd like to really go back around the panel uh, and um, be a little flexible. Uh, I'd like you to address your uh, favorite uh, impediment to <coughs> two. You're not going to be uh, comprehensive, certainly, in the, in the, for the sake of time. But, uh, Jim, can you, uh, can you start us off on uh, solutions? Well, my impediment related to derivatives, and it, it ties in perfectly with what Bo had just commented on. And so I'm going to try to do this as time efficiently as possible and be very brief. And I'll use the analogy of oil. If you totaled up all of the transaction volume of oil producers and people who put the gasoline in their car and compare that number to the transaction volume of derivative oil sales, i.e. people who buy oil futures contracts for investment purposes or financial hedging or the like, the latter would dwarf the former. We're in a marketplace today that is the former, where we have owners selling to users. People, maybe you're hearing it from me first, but Wall Street will set you free. Because Wall Street is going to come and create <laughs> derivative products that do for intellectual property what they currently do for petrochemicals. And there will be new products that are derivatives that allow you to trade either entire categories of patents or entire uh, companies' patents. For example, you could have a tracking stock for all of the patents of Microsoft. And this is not pie in the sky. This is, this is happening now. And that's where I believe the market will really generate. And once that happens, once the CEO of a company wakes up and hears that the tracking stock for their IP fell 20% overnight because one of their competitors made an announcement, they're going to pay more attention to how are we utilizing these assets. And that's going to spur the activity of the underlying commodity. Good. Thank you. Uh, Irving, and, and also you can, we did jump over ambiguity, so you okay, can. Okay, well, it, it will come more in. in go, go ahead, I'm sorry. I had a follow on. The people who brought you subprime. That's right. <laughs> 
it's, it's, it's tough. So, Irving, go ahead. If you want to remark yeah. on ambiguity. Um, well, I, I will get to ambiguity uh, as part of this. Uh, not surprisingly, uh, I really believe that web-based solutions can help immensely. Uh, let me give a couple of examples that are happening. Uh, there's been an initiative called Open Patent Review, uh, the peer-to-patent project where when a patent is, is submitted to the examiner, it is available to a whole community, to anybody, who go in and are encouraged to put in information to help the examiner. So if, I, if, if somebody believes there is prior art and therefore it shouldn't be given, they, they, should, they will say that. Is it prior to disclosure after 18 months? Uh, this is at the time that it, it, it's available. 18 months. 18 months, yeah. Okay. yeah. It is, and, and the USPTO is very involved with that. This is uh, to be able to, I mean, the, one of the problems has been the poor examiners are overwhelmed. And there are lots and lots of people who have ideas and could contribute, and, and through the web, you know, it's a classic web 2.0 application now, you can do that. Other web-based things, as we've been talking about, there are some excellent search engines to be able to find things. Now, now we get to the ambiguity. Uh, one, I, I think that there is a difference, there's been a difference between patents in technology and hardware in things, in physical things, probably because that's been around for a long time. And, and, that, and let me include molecules and compounds in physical things and patents in software and business processes which are relatively new. And I don't think that in hardware I could say, here is a patent for something to plow the earth. I, I don't, if I just say that, and I want to cover every possible way you plow, I suspect it would get thrown out. Am I correct? And then, you know, later on somebody comes up with a tractor. I said, that's used to plowing. You owe me money. Uh, you know, I think we've learned over time that to get a patent on a physical thing, it has to be very precise. This is what you get. And, and if it's too broad, it gets thrown out. There's so. debates over that very issue, I'm sure, as many in the life sciences. Yeah, but, but, so but I think, remember, it's all relative. So right. it's far better. <laughs> in the problem in software, one of the problems, and it gets to the low-quality patents that have been issued, and, and I think you brought this up before, is if there is ambiguity, there is a patent expressed in English and it's not clear to anybody what the hell it covers. And it's not clear if it works. You know, English is not a very good Turing machine. So you don't know if you can execute it. Why do they grant it? I mean, a patent that is ambiguous and too broad should be thrown out. And one of the complaints of software patents, let alone business process, is that they haven't been thrown out. I have no idea why. Let me say 
the examiners are overworked. But I think that if we applied the, the same principles that if you want a patent in something you expressed in software, give me the code or the meta language so it's very precise and so it's executable in some way to make sure it works, then it would become much easier to classify and to make it searchable in a web-based thing. So I think that the prospects for web-based tools to find things and to, you know, if you want to have a new company, you want to decide are you infringing on somebody, there should be tools that quickly let you find it, and if you don't know how to use it, I suspect your company would do it for them. And then you can probably sell them insurance, or if not you, somebody can. No, no, but that's perfect. Well, no, no, it's like, not, not like a mortgage. Uh, you, when you buy housing, uh, what, what do we call it? You, you buy title insurance. Right. Yeah, it would, be, it would be the equivalent of title insurance. But to make it all work well, the patents have to be forced to be specific, which is what we all want. Get rid of ambiguous patents, get rid of uh, too broad patents, make them be what they are. But, but, but what you're talking about then, and this gets back to mortgage and housing and so on, is that among the solutions to get to that, and presumably other issues that have been raised, is the broad question of what corollary institutions right, have to be developed and by whom right, to make this work, the analogs to uh, title insurance, surveyors, reputable brokers, credit rating, and on down the list. So that's something to be great, uh, you folks, as we move through that, uh, you know, along with your other favorite uh, solutions. Opposition, right. capabilities, which actually will encourage people to say, wait a minute, I know this is being applied for, but I know of this prior art. Yeah. Or afterwards even saying, you know, that shouldn't have been granted because I know this prior art okay. uh, exists. And, and, and so there is an attempt to help the poor patent examiners out by doing some of their work for them. So, so how far, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with uh, some of the uh, legislation there. Uh, how, indeed, how far is that uh, reform legislation, uh, how far does that go in addressing the, the kind of range of uh, issues here? I'm not uh, sanguine. Okay. It doesn't answer a lot of the other questions. But if your interest is quality of tech, right. it goes a long way toward helping that. Great. I don't want to run out of time here before everybody can uh, propound their particular solution. So, Mark, please. Well, um, and, and I brought up ambiguity uh, the first time around. And rather than debate whether or not we can make things less ambiguous, uh, dealing with what we have right here today and dealing in this world, uh, again, I come back to one of the solutions being to develop, uh, to develop workable frameworks for there to be dialogue both inside the organization and between organizations as to what drives value and what these things are worth. So, you know, I've seen the power of, 
I mean, we talk about Miller Modigliani and we talk about, you know, uh, discount rates and so forth. Those discount rates, which are meant to encompass both, you know, all kinds of risks, are, are typically not robust enough for this process. So, right, so, I mean, to, to ask a uh, technology uh, person, if you're talking about, you know, whether or not this technology would work and, and the person talks to you about that and they say, they say a few things and then you say, well, hmm, you know, I was starting with a 30% discount rate. Do you think this takes that up or down 2% or 3%? And the person looks at you with a blank stare. They don't deal in that world. They don't know how to have that discussion, right? So in my mind, you need a framework that, that pulls it apart and where you can have a dialogue with technology people, legal people, people who know how to commercialize things, and take their observations, both individually and collectively, and put them into a framework that will yield, if not a value, a means of determining how, value, how you arrive at value and what will swing value wildly one way or another and what will only move it this much. So I've, where I've seen success, it's using those types of methodologies, and I've seen companies. I've been in rooms where I've directed groups of those disparate groups, and we come together and we're actually able to put it into a framework where it yields something that everyone is comfortable with the outcome. They're comfortable with the general ranges, they're comfortable with what is really moving things, and that is very empowering in terms of making decisions, of getting people off the dime. You know, I might throw out just in the, in the pharma space, uh, you know, a really, it could work for anybody, but um, if you're flooded with things as a large corporation, what if you were to come up with a, a value framework into which all those different types of risks could be plotted and, you know, you know how, how likely is it that you'll be able to detect infringement? The lawyers and others can tell you that and we can work it into this probabilistic model. What if you threw that model out and said, you know, anybody who wants to bring me something, here, put, run your thing through this model. Tell me what the technology application is. Tell me where it, where it results in benefit at the end and address all these issues along the way. When you bring me that in this format, then we'll have a discussion and we'll all be able to be working with a similar framework. We still may not get to an answer, but it's better than a bunch of people cackling at you from the outside none of which you can really do anything with or assimilate, and so therefore you basically hold them all at bay. And, and there could be some fantastic ideas out there, as, as several people have said. So, so that's my, at least one of the aspects of the solution, I think. Not, these are all great, great yep, yep. things here, but that's my thought. Thank you, man. Uh, Tony, your mic. <clears throat> so two big problem areas that, that I mentioned. One was this, uh, continuing on Marshall's theme of the management and business systems. And then the other one was this notion of risk, especially for early stage pharma assets. On the management systems, right now, the, the industry is, has a business model that is built on success of the past, and I think there are real options there to change how they not only just value IP and do some of the blocking and tackling, but actually manage portfolios of IP very differently. Um, and so then, not only management systems, but governances and, and entire business models, are probably, there are probably answers along those lines. And then in terms of risk, uh, I sort of split this up into two, uh, two categories. One, there's probably portfolio management um, approaches that pharmaceutical companies can learn from venture capitalists, insurance companies, um, and other uh, industries which fundamentally understand risk, risk in a different way 
and then optimize a portfolio of intellectual property by trading in and out of it much more quickly than a pharmaceutical company would. And then the second big area is exposure to risk. You know, right now a, a company in licenses is in a compound and it either works or it doesn't. It's a very sort of roulette system of, of, uh, of trying to monetize IP. Um, there's a spectrum of, of ways to change your exposure to risk. At one end of the spectrum, a lot of companies are already doing it, taking minority stakes in companies through venture arms, et cetera. At the other end of that spectrum, I think um, Jim was talking about, actually being able to securitize um, IP in a different way or create vehicles uh, for um, secondary markets around the intellectual property so you can get a better sense of not only what it's worth, but you actually know who you're sharing your, uh, the risk with more broadly. I'd like to bring it back to something you mentioned a few minutes ago, the, uh, the corollary institutions that, that could be so important in helping markets function properly. And uh, it's something my company's working on, I'm working on, a lot of other people are working on on the commercial side. And uh, you know, these are things like Jim's auction platform, uh, ways for companies to communicate better and share information, ways for companies to collaborate uh, to solve certain problems in the industry. And, and private industry is driving a lot of things here. And, and it's quite interesting. Hopefully that will evolve to the point that it has in real estate, as you were pointing out. So there's a lot of opportunity there. There's a lot of need. And, and there's action happening on the ground. Any, any room for uh, government uh, intervening, uh, kind of help uh, some of these institutions together? We, we have the analog we, uh, of, uh, you know, it wasn't like uh, the financial markets were doing just fine in 1929, okay? A uh, little room for SEC, financial uh, regulation, uh, pushing issues, transparency for decades now. So I'll, I'll be the pinata and <laughs> voluntarily, and, uh, and I'll say no. <laughs> and uh, well, the reason being, my, my hope would be that that would be a, uh, a last resort after we give the private sector a chance to see if it can solve these problems in appropriate ways, and, and they'll be judged appropriate by the users of them. So in, in, in some, at some future time, if people decide that the industry of, of brokers that have arisen are not facilitating transactions and that the multilateral institutions are not facilitating the sharing of information, all of these things, then uh, if the situation becomes dire enough, maybe something will have to happen. But I don't think that will happen, and I hope it doesn't. And it's my job to make sure it doesn't. So. <laughs> Ian, on that note. Well, you know, the three great lies in history, you know, number one, it's okay to start a ground war in Asia because we have an exit strategy. Yeah. Number two, the check's in the mail. And number three, we're from the government and we're here to help you. Uh, notwithstanding, you know, I have to disagree with Lou. I think that there's an important role for uh, the government to step in here and take actions which can, can you know, bolster and dramatically improve the, the performance and development of, of uh, markets for technology. In particular, you know, I would advocate, uh, you know, lock up FASB, Financial Accounting Standards Board, in a room and not let them out until they come up with some kind, any kind of acceptable method for public, you know, public companies to report uh, in, in some reasonable detail their holdings and valuation of, of intangible assets, in particular IP. You know, I think the accounting industry has been stuck on this for a long time, perhaps for very good reasons, but you know, at this point, I think any solution is better than better than no solution. 
The second thing I would advocate here on the, on the back to the topic of transparency is some kind of government mandating of, of reporting of IP transactions that facilitates price discovery and you know, non-insider's non ability to evaluate the operations of these markets. You know, back to the housing market, you know, there are land registries, people have to report the transactions, it doesn't seem to, to affect the ability of people to, you know, it doesn't seem to affect investment in, in building housing, it doesn't seem to affect the volume of transactions in housing. You know, that seems to me, you know, the luxury of being an academic and being outside this system, I really fail to see, you know, why it is that people are the, the participants in these markets are so reflexively anxious about the idea that, that transactions somehow convey the kind of commercially important information which would ruin their company, you know. Of course, at the margin, people have concerns about commercial confidentiality and so forth, but I, I just don't uh, see how these can be so important that, that we'll let, we'll have, we have this iceberg problem, that all the transactions, many of the transactions are never reported, those that are reported are hidden inside you know, expensive commercial databases that you know, independent inventors or, or casual participants in the market you know, just can't get access to. This month, that contains uh, a study of 160 transactions that were all publicly known, and and I speculate about what price levels are in patent brokerage markets. And I know that there are millions more transactions that I don't know about, and maybe my sample is not completely representative. But I think it, I hope it will be helpful in helping people find the right price levels. And it was all done without the government's involvement. <laughs> I just got the mic down behind you. Yeah. Um, uh, Tanya Moore, Microsoft. Um, you know, a, a couple of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> formerly of IBM, right. as announced earlier. Um, I, I mean, the, <laughs> well, you know, 24 I'm years like at IBM, you know, brain cells <laughs> misfire once in a while. But um, we're really talking about two different things, I think. One is, uh, when it comes to transactions, uh, you know, there is licensing economics review. Anyone who attends LES training sessions or annual meetings really knows a lot about licensing expectations, what buyers pay for IP, what the current rates, going rates are. Honestly, having done this for many, many years now in at least two different places, it's really not a mystery. Um, but then what I really uh, would love to hear from the panel is the distinction between patents and the rest of the intellectual property. It is unfortunate that when people talk about IP, the focus is always around patents. And frankly, patent licensing is like handling nuclear oh, you know, weapons. Um, the reality is that there are lots and lots of transactions where you're not leading with patents, you're really leading with value-add technology. The discussion itself leads to a more normal biz dev engagement environment. And it is a friendly partnership kind of environment because you're bringing something of value to the table. And oh, by the way, patents are coming for the ride. Um, and if I, you know, if anyone on the panel would like to address that, uh, to me, that would seem to be one of the big solutions here in terms of licensing. Well, let me just push back a bit on this question of how much information is available. You know, since Ashish isn't here, I'll take his name in vain and assure you that amongst academic economists and government economists and people who are interested in this problem, nobody has any idea what the size of the market for technology is in the United States. Is it $20 billion worth of transactions? Is it $200 billion? You know, these numbers nobody has any sense of. And uh, you know, neither is it very clear without a lot of elaborate analysis 
you know, what part of the value of a public co corporation is attributable to the intangibles or, or not. Uh, it's, it's, I think this is a, a formidably difficult problem. And in, this, you know, in the LES world, right, you know, information is formally or informally available or traded around, but I just, it's nowhere near sufficiently transparent, in my view, to, to support a, a well-functioning market. So let me add to that, because I agree with that, and I want to give this back with, with, that with what Tanya just said, and I want to agree partly with, uh, with Ian. In one sense, you want, to be care you want to be careful what you wish for. Okay. Uh, I think the government has a lot it can do on the quality of patents. It has a lot it can do with getting the stuff out in the sunlight. I think it's a crime that assets aren't on balance sheets. And, you know, as I'm fond of saying, it's like telling Napoleon, I won't give you the name of 70% of your troops, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and so you can't do anything with them. On the other hand, we just went through a monkey drill last year with the Internal Revenue Service that wanted to get in there so that they could figure out a way to tax these licensing transactions uh, uh, between corporations and attribute some value to them, which is different from the buyer and the seller's point of view. And you can imagine the reception they got from the uh, private sector uh, on, that, on that very same proposition. That's the downside of, of, of where this all goes. Uh, from, from one sense, uh, and, 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 and what it would do to the uh, activity in this regard. So I would just urge a little bit of caution before you invite the, your, your brethren in there from uh, Fair enough. Uh, uh, Constitution uh, Street. Uh, Irving had uh, that mark. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll need to probably, uh, you know, to, to, to your point that we focus too much on patents, uh, you're absolutely right in the sense that I believe the bulk of the IP revenue IBM gets is actually IP-based revenue, and the revenue is really the know-how that goes around the IP. So if somebody says, you know, uh, I like this fab you have in Fishkill, build me one, just giving them access to the patents wouldn't work, they say. Where the hell are the inventors of this stuff? Say, oh, that costs you a little more. So, so, so the people go along and they teach you the whole project. Uh, and I really believe that more and more over time, don't forget, it's not surprising if I tell you that the key to the knowledge economy is knowledge and that the bulk of the knowledge is in the head of the people. But I was in a Raleigh lab yesterday, uh, and I heard some incredible new ideas about platforms for virtual world applications. And the first question I say is, did you patent it? And it wasn't because I said, OK, now I can go attack everybody else who has it? No, 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 it's because even if we want to give it away and donate it to an open source community, you cannot donate what you don't own. So get this stuff, and once you have it, you can go do an engagement and somebody pays you, you can form an open community, but 
the key is the know-how. But in my mind, if you don't make as concrete as possible the key components of your know-how, then you are at, a, at, at the danger that somebody else will, and, and, they, and then you're screwed. I don't know how else I'd to like, say it. Uh, we, we'll need to keep to schedule, so I, I would like to put, give Mark the last word. Uh, OK. So it's, uh, All right. Real quick, I guess as to Tanya's, I mean, patents can be a necessary but not sufficient condition. I agree with you. It's too valued. And I think those that we can wrap legal rights around very tightly, I think you know, where Jim is going is clearly you know, we can get there. With some of the trade secrets and the other packages of know-how, those are going to probably have to be company-to-company -company type transactions. I think on the, on the comment on the, the FASB and, and, and accounting, I would only say, I mean, first of all, I'd say as an accountant from way back, but not a practicing one, uh, if you wait for the accountants to solve your problem, you may be waiting a long time, okay, first of all. But also, I don't think it's totally their job, and I think it's the job of corporations to get ready for something like that, because if, mm -hmm. if, if I were to say, it's now time to value this, I would argue that 95 to 99% of the companies would not have enough knowledge and management around those assets and an understanding of the characteristics of those assets wherein they could ever be valued. Or, so I would say if corporations want it to be so, you have to start getting ready. And the, and the byproduct of that readiness will be way more than just financial reporting. It'll be the ability to do a lot more of these deals because you'll understand and you'll have the, the ability to move and make decisions. Great. On that, I'd like to thank members of our panel and thank you, audience. It's been very good.